0: Second Corinthians chapter 7 is a kind of an end to Paul's very long parenthesis that we've been looking at over the last several weeks. If you may recall, back in chapter 2, Paul had mentioned uh, Titus and uh, the fact that he was expecting Titus to uh, meet with him, uh, but he hadn't been able to find Titus while he was, Paul was in Troas. And so Paul made his way to northern Greece today, which was Macedonia then, probably in uh, the area of the Philippian church where he had established a ministry there. And uh, Paul finally did get together with Titus. And the thing that he was anticipating was a report from Titus with regard to how the Corinthian church received his first letter. And so chapter 7 is going to eventually get into that particular part of uh, this discussion that Paul started way back in chapter 2. And of course, it's been, as I said, several weeks since we uh, were there. But remember, this is a letter that would have been read, and if you read it from chapter 1 all the way through to the end, it really shouldn't take you any more than 15 minutes. So... It may seem like a long time for us, and we may have forgotten some of the details, but as far as the Corinthian church was concerned, when they heard this letter read to them, uh, it was uh, a lot more fluid than, than what we've been able to experience because of this long parenthesis. And again, the parenthesis had to do with the fact that he needed, or felt the need at least, to defend his apostleship. The fact that he had not visited them when he had said that he had hoped that he would visit them caused some to think that Paul was not trustworthy. We've talked about that on more than one occasion. So Paul, again, in these last several chapters, was defending himself against those who are accusing him of uh, being uh, a man that wasn't trustworthy or they, he didn't, really, they didn't really think that he was uh, that important as far as his ministry to the church in Corinth was concerned. Even though he began the church in Corinth and was there for several months, uh, there were others who thought that other people were of greater value or more importance to them, like Apollos or even Peter. And uh, they were cliques that had resulted in the uh, Corinthian church as a result of that. Corinthian church also had many issues that they had to deal with, and Paul, in his first letter, if you'll recall, dealt with all of those very, very forcefully. From a man who was sleeping with his father's wife to the way that they conducted themselves at the Lord's Supper, Uh, the fact that they were haughty, proudful um, individuals as well as a church. They were puffed up about the knowledge, but Paul accused them in that first letter of not having love. But he also said that they were behind no church in regard to the gifts of the Spirit. And so we've got kind of a a mixed bag of uh, things that were done, dealt with in the first Corinthian letter. And Paul again has been telling the Corinthian church here in this particular letter that he indeed uh, can be trusted. He is an apostle appointed by the Lord, and uh, he has expressed his authority uh, to reinforce the things that he has already said in the past and the things that he's going to continue to talk about in the remaining chapters that we have in this letter. So he's not done with his... A refutation of the Corinthian church. There are a few other things that he has to deal with. But for now in this portion of the letter, he's going to basically switch gears and talk a little bit about his time in Macedonia with uh, Titus. But so before he does that, he introduces chapter 7 with really a conclusion of what he had said in chapter 6. Remember in chapter 6 he talked about the fact that they needed to come apart from the world. They needed to separate themselves, not to fellowship with unbelievers, not to be unequally yoked. And uh, that was something that he was dealing with in that last chapter that we looked at the last time. And in verse 1 of chapter 7, it's really a conclusion of his statements that he had made in chapter 6. And here in chapter 7, verse 1, he says, Therefore, having these promises, the promise that he had mentioned that the Father has given all of us, that he will be a father to us and he, we will be his sons and daughters, and it is a promise that the Lord has given to the church. Paul says, Therefore, having these wonderful promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all unfilthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. That's such an important verse of Scripture. Take note of what Paul is saying. We are responsible to cleanse ourselves from all ungodliness, all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, the things that come to our minds and the things that we do in the body. We need to perfect holiness in our activities, in our individual lives, both internally and externally. So, that's something that Paul is emphasizing here, but notice he says that do it in the fear of the Lord, in the fear of God. How important is it that we recognize that we are to fear God? And I want to make sure that we understand that that phrase fear God isn't a phrase that implies that He is a God who is going to crush us if we do anything wrong. It's not that kind of fear that Paul is talking about here. He's talking about a a full reverence of the awesomeness of God. How great is our God, and greatly to be praised. David talked about the fact that the fear of the Lord was the beginning of wisdom. Solomon said the same thing, and you'll find references to the fear of the Lord with regard to wisdom and knowledge and understanding throughout the books of Proverbs and the book of Psalms as well. And here Paul is saying that we're to perfect holiness in our lives in that fear that God prescribes for us we're not to fear his wrath we're to fear his awesome presence in the sense that he is so much greater than than we are and you look at the creation and you see the the magnificence and the the beauty of of the creation and and the vastness of of all of what we can see with our eyes and we realize God made all of that And so how much greater is he than all of creation? And how wonderful it is to know that we have a God who has introduced himself to us in a way that causes us to realize he loves us and he wants the very best for us. We're not to be fearful of him, but we're to fear in that sense of awesomeness that Paul, as elsewhere and other gospel writers and writers of the books of all the various Uh, Old Testament and New Testament scriptures have emphasized over and over again. For those of us who love the Lord, who know His Word, it's not a terrible thing to fear God, but it is a terror to those who do not fear in the proper way. But here, again, we're told that we're to cleanse ourselves. To be clean means to be without sin. And that's the emphasis that Is made throughout the New Testament for us as believers in Christ Jesus, we are to indeed make every effort to make sure that we don't fall into the sin uh, that we used to fall into before we were believers. But when we do sin, and John tells us that we all sin, and Paul tells us that all have fallen short of the of the perfect will of God in all sin and fall short of God's glory because we are in these mortal bodies and these mortal bodies are subject to sin because of our sin nature. We have to deal with sin. That's why Paul tells us we need to reckon ourselves to be dead unto sin and alive unto Christ. We're to deal with sin on a daily basis. That's why Paul would say, I die daily. And that's something that we also need to recognize in our own selves that it is a requirement for us in order to be clean, holy, separated unto the Lord. And that's what the word holy means. Sanctification is something that we must be daily involved with and attempting as much as we are able to f- find a way to avoid those things that tempt us and those things that draw us away from God and to rather stay close to Him. James tells us that we are to draw near to God, and when we do so, if we humble ourselves and draw near to Him, then Satan will flee. Satan has nothing on you and I. Satan is an enemy, and he is a powerful enemy. But as far as the believer is concerned, we have the advocate that no other can have who doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. That advocate that we have, the Holy Spirit, and also Jesus himself is our advocate interceding for us before the Father, so that when Satan comes before the Father in heaven and brings his accusations against you and I, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. And when we recognize that fact, we can then realize the significance of what it means for us to come by faith, confessing our sins to him, And know that as we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That word cleansing is a very, very wonderful thing. Here in chapter 7, verse 1, he says that we are to cleanse ourselves. But we're told elsewhere that we have been cleansed, washed by the blood of the Lamb, by the Spirit's cleansing. And it's a beautiful thing that we have both of these things made known to us through the Word of God that we have the responsibility to endeavor in a daily basis to be clean before our God to cleanse ourselves from all unrighteousness, but also to know that He cleanses us in His perspective. It's a done deal. It's amazing to us, to me, I hope it is to you, that when we think of The word justification, it should be a certainty in our minds that we are justified, have been, past tense, done at the moment of conversion. We are justified, and that word justified simply means that we have been forgiven of all sins, past, present, and future. Nothing that we can do is a surprise to God in our lives, and if we do sin, again we have an advocate with the Father. We must confess our sins, we must go to Him and ask for forgiveness. And there is a penalty for sin in that we lose our rewards if we continue in those sins. But the sins that we commit, have committed, or may commit in the future are indeed already dealt with by Jesus on the cross when He said, It is finished. That's the promise of the Word of God. That's what justification means. It's complete. It's final. It is absolute. There is no unforgiveness with God. All things are new. That's what Paul told us in chapter 5. All things are new. Behold, all things are new. Old things are passed away. We are new creations in Christ Jesus. That's what justification has accomplished for us. Now, in this life that we're living, we are also to be sanctified. Jesus prayed that wonderful prayer in John 17, where he prayed to the Father that we would be sanctified through his word. Because his word is truth, we have a sanctifying power through the knowledge of His Word, in the reading of His Word, the study of His Word, and that's a beautiful thing. We need to understand that the sanctification that we received is both final as justification was. We are indeed sanctified in God's uh, mind, in God's perspective. It's a done deal. However, we're living again in these bodies of flesh and there is... Because of that, a process through which we must continue in our daily living. And that means that we are being sanctified. It's a process that must continue until the day we take our last breath. Paul says it this way in Philippians chapter 2, I press on to the high mark of the calling of God in Christ Jesus. It is a work in progress. We all are there being sanctified. He has begun a good work in you, we're told, and He will complete it in that day. That day referring to the day of redemption. When we come together in our glorified bodies, we will stand before Him fully sanctified, fully redeemed, fully glorified. We're not there yet, but we are making progress toward that goal. And it should be a daily goal that we set for ourselves that we would endeavor to do what is right in God's eyes so that we might be clean before him, wholly separated before him. Separated means that which is implied by the word itself. Set apart. It's not the same as others who don't know the truth. We're not like them anymore. We once were like them. But we're new creations in Christ Jesus. Remember that. Live it out in your life. Paul says here, having these promises that God has made, that He wants to be our Father, our Daddy. He wants us to be His children. And that promise that He has made to us, those wonderful promises that we have an inheritance in Christ Jesus, that our sins have indeed been forgiven, that we can indeed live for Him by the power of this Holy Spirit in us, who dwells in us for the purpose of bringing us to that place of acceptance in the Beloved. All of these things that He has promised in His Word, are ours by faith. And when we realize that, we have these promises, let us Cleanse ourselves. Let us be motivated, because of the promises that he has made, to do that which he is insisting upon here in this passage. Cleanse ourselves from all unrighteousness, all filthiness, all of that which taints us, all of that which separates us from God's presence. You see, God cannot stand in the presence of sin. He will not allow it. That's why in the Old Testament Scriptures that the sacrificial system was established to demonstrate to the people of God that He is holy and they are not. And because they are not, there had to be a way that they could get close to God because that was God's desire. But they couldn't do it because of their sin. So God established a temporary Remedy, And that temporary remedy was a sacrificial system where an animal would be sacrificed instead of the individual. Blood was shed, and that blood having been shed allowed them then to come into a fellowship with God because their sins had been covered. Now in the New Testament, we have a far better covenant. We have a covenant that was established by Christ Jesus who died on the cross and shed his own blood once for all. Read the book of Hebrews and realize that he is our high priest. We no longer need a high priest to enter into the Holy of Holies once a year for the atonement of our sins. He has made full atonement for our sins by dying on the cross. That's the power of the words that he spoke. It is finished. And so we have this. But it's our responsibility to make every effort in our lives to live for Him in a way that will bring glory to Him, shining the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ in our lives, and by demonstrating our faith through our works to those around us who don't know Christ, the light that we're shining might be that which the Lord can use to draw them to Himself. Beautiful thing that we're talking about here, the fact that We are responsible for cleansing ourselves, even though he has performed that cleansing for us. And in his mind, it is established, it is done. But it's a daily process that we must continue to endeavor to complete. Notice also, again, that he has begun a good work in us. He is doing the work in us. We're told by the Apostle Paul to work out our own salvation in fear and trembling. And that's a kind of a scary thought if you don't read the rest of the verse. Because it says there, in that same place where we said we're to work out our own salvation in fear and trembling, that it is God who is working in us to perfect that which is lacking in us. What a marvelous gospel we have to look into and believe and live out our daily lives. So that's what Paul has now concluded. All of what he had said in chapter 6, basically this last verse that we just read, the first verse of chapter 7, verse 1, is such a critically important verse that basically gives us the final touch of what he wanted to share with his church that he had introduced the gospel to so many years before. And he wants them to understand that they are indeed the children of God. That's why he's saying, "Beloved, He's saying, you are brothers and sisters in the Lord. You are family. You are Christians. You're carnal because you've not done things correctly. But that's been addressed. And now Paul is going to continue to talk about that which he had addressed in the first letter and the things that he had to deal with as he was waiting for response from Titus as they would come together eventually, he thought in Troas, but it wasn't until he got to Macedonia that Titus did arrive. But there's good news that Paul is going to present here as he now writes about his meeting finally with his friend Titus. Now he's going to continue talking about the need for them to be very careful in observing the things that he has told them. He says in verse 2, open your hearts to us. This is something that he asked them to do back in chapter 6 also. Open your hearts to us. We've wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have cheated no one. I do not say that to condemn you. For I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and live together. Paul is, again, making that same appeal that he made in chapter 6. Remember, I love you, and I want you to love me as I love you, as Christ loved us. So it must be for each of us to love one another. Paul is encouraging them to drop all accusations, turn away from all things that would cause them to think negatively of him or anybody else in the church. Live for Christ and love one another as Christ loved the church. That's the way that we all should live also. He says in verse 4, Great is my boldness of speech toward you. He can say that because he is an apostle. Great is my boasting on your behalf. So he says, I have been very forceful in the things that I've said, but I also want you to know that I think of you as a very special person. Part of the family of God. I'm boasting about you to others. And so Paul is saying, I've boasted on your behalf. I'm filled with comfort, Paul says. I'm exceedingly joyful, even in all our tribulation. Now, Paul had suffered greatly, and he had shared some of that suffering in chapter 6, and we'll later on talk more about that in chapter 11. But he's telling the Corinthian church and us that though he had suffered greatly as an apostle, it was a joy to him to have to go through all of that because of the privilege that God had given him to share the gospel truth with others. What a wonderful thing this man has done for us to demonstrate how we all should live for Christ no matter what might come our way. He's paved the way for us to recognize the fact that should we have to endure tribulation, should we have to endure persecution, we can rely on the Spirit of God to carry us through those things and bring us to victory. And that is the promise that God had made to Paul, and Paul extended through the Spirit to us. Paul is saying, that's how I have been I've been comforted by the God of all comfort. Remember we said that God is the God of all comfort back in chapter 1 of this great letter. He's the God of all comfort. He comforts us and knowing that we have been comforted. We can comfort others. And Paul is here saying, I have been comforted and I am exceeding joyful even in the tribulations. And let that bring comfort to you as well, he says. Verse 5 says, For indeed, when we came to Macedonia... Our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts, inside were fears. You you see, Paul endured a great deal, as we said just a while ago, but that doesn't mean that Paul uh, was a man who was able to just brush it off, you know, a man who had no feelings. It was a very, very painful experience and a very fearful thing for him in many of the places where he would go and suffer greatly on behalf of the Lord. It wasn't that he was without fear. He says he did have fear. He did have trouble on every side. He was a very, very uh, beaten man. And many times he could have walked away and said, I've had enough of this. But he pressed on because he knew that it was for the purpose of His having to go through all of these things that God would be glorified. He says, Nevertheless, in verse 6, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. So here we have finally the mention again of the fact that while he was in Macedonia, he had been looking for Titus while he was in Troas on the other side of the Aegean Sea. But Troas was a place though that was a very great time for Paul in the ministry. He felt like he had to leave Troas because of his concern for Titus. Since Titus hadn't come to Troas, where they had originally planned a meeting, he believed that there must be something wrong, that perhaps the Corinthian church didn't receive his letter, perhaps Titus didn't make it to Corinth, perhaps he didn't make it from Corinth back to Troas, something had happened, he had no way of knowing, So he went on from Troas, even though there were many things that God was doing there because of his concern for his friend. But take note of the fact that here in verse 6 he said, Nevertheless, God who comforts the downcast. There was a point in his ministry where Paul was downcast. You might not think that would be possible. A man of faith like Paul, could that ever be possible? Of course it's possible. It's very, very likely that Oftentimes, you and I or anybody else, though we may be filled with the Holy Spirit, doing a mighty work for the Lord, there may come times when we will experience that feeling of being downcast. Remember David. In all of the victories that David had, yes, David did sin, but David was a man after God's own heart, and David never left his God. However, the many things that David had to endure caused David, like Paul, to feel downcast. And David wrote about that, and I'd like to share some of what David wrote in Psalm 42 and also in Psalm 43 about that experience of David. Because he says in David's Psalms, in those two places, Psalm 42 and 43, he repeats this particular portion of this Word of God. He says in verse 11 of chapter 42, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. He had expressed that the tears had been flowing. He had expressed that that as a deer pants for the water brook, so pants my soul for the Lord, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. And then who shall come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. He says in those first verses of chapter 42. Read also in chapter 43, where he talks about the need for vindication by the the Lord against uh, David's enemies. He says in verse one of chapter 43 of the Book of Psalms, "Vindicate me, O God, plead my cause against an ungodly nation." Oh, deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man, for you are the God of my strength. Why do you cast me off? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? And then he goes on in verse 5 to say again, Why are you so cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him, the help of my God, or the help of my countenance and my God. Paul's talking... Rather, David is talking to himself. Take note of the fact that he's questioning his own soul. Why are you so downcast, O my soul? Think about that. David is thinking, just speaking aloud to himself and realizing that though he is cast down, though he is downcast, he shouldn't be because he has God on his side. And he's reminding himself that God is his God and that he will take care of him. And that's why he can say that he is trusting in him. I will yet praise him in spite of all that's going on. I will praise my Lord, my God. With the voice of joy and praise, he says in verse 4 of, of Psalm 42, with a multitude that kept the pilgrim pre- feast, I will remember those things that God has done for me. That's a man who is convinced that God is on his side, no matter what happens. And yes, Paul was downcast, but he knew the same thing that David knew. God was on his side. And God, the Comforter, would be comforting him through those difficult times, through those terrible times of despair. God is on your side, my friends. Titus did finally come. They met up in Macedonia. Paul is excited now about the fact that his friend is there. He had feared for the for the life of his friend. He was fearful about the response that the Philippian, uh, the Corinthian church might have had with regard to his first letter. Titus was sent by Paul to bring that letter to them. It was read in Titus's presence, and they responded. And now Titus has finally brought word back to Paul, and Paul is here talking about. The things that Titus brought back to Paul as an encouragement to his dear brother in the faith. Again, now verse 7, Paul says, Not only by his coming was I comforted, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you. When he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. Paul was excited that Titus came, but now that Titus told him the good news that the church in Corinth received his letter well and responded to it appropriately, Titus brought good news to Paul and Paul was filled with joy from the friendship of his friend and the news that his friend had brought. So Paul goes on to say, now in verse 8, more detail about the impact That his letter had on the Corinthian church. He says in verse 8, For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a little while. Now Paul is saying, I know that you were sorry because of what Titus said, and that's a good thing. I don't regret that you were sorry. I was sorry that I wrote the letter, but I don't regret that I wrote the letter. And I want to explain why. That sorrow had a work in your lives. And that is something that Paul is going to talk about here. I didn't regret it, for I perceived that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a little while. Now in verse 9 he begins to say what he's pointing at in this statement of having received this letter with sorrow. He says, In verse 9, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry. I'm not rejoicing in the fact that you were sorry, but that you sorrow, and that your sorrow led to repentance. That's what I'm happy about. The sorrow led to repentance. That's an amazing statement. For you were made sorrow in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. Paul is saying they had a sorrow that led to repentance. And that was a godly sorrow, he says. Now, I want you to understand, sorrow, as defined here by Paul, is not repentance. Repentance is not sorrow. Sorrow, godly sorrow, leads to repentance, but not all sorrow. Sorrow is something that we are going to feel as an emotion. And usually... We're sorry for something. But it's never adequate for us when we are sorry for something to tell the person that we are sorry we offended them. That's not enough. Yes, we should be sorry that we offended them. But we should, instead of saying to them, I'm sorry I offended you, say, would you forgive me for having offended you? The desire to be forgiven is a desire To have the other person recognize that you have repented from that which you have done. You've changed your mind. You've turned around. And that is what repentance means. The word metanoia means a 180 degree turning from something to a different path. A better path. In this case, repentance is turning from sin to the living God. From serving idols to serving the living God. From faithlessness to faithfulness. That's what they had done in Corinth. They had a godly sorrow. A worldly sorrow, which he's going to be talking about here, is also something that Paul needed to address. And again, the fact that they sorrowed with a godly sorrow that led to repentance is exactly the way we all should do anything that is needed when we are needing to deal with sin in our lives that has been offense to another individual or an offense to God. We need to be sorrowful that we did that, but we also need to repent from that and then ask for forgiveness. And forgiveness from God is assured. When we confess our sins, that word confess is an interesting Greek word. It means agree with. When we confess our sins to God, we're agreeing with God that We are indeed a sinner and have sinned because God knows that we have. We're in agreement with Him and we're confessing that sin, acknowledging our sin, and therefore asking for His forgiveness and it's received. So it is with us also in our relationships with one another. We should be always asking for forgiveness when we have offended individuals and we should always be willing to forgive those who have offended us. How many times? Peter asked that silly question. Oh, yes, Peter, it's more than just seven times. It's more than just 70 times seven. It's every time. Because God forgives every time. No matter how many times we might sin, if we go to Him and confess that same sin, over and over again, it's a done deal. It's a done deal. God forgives it. Godly sorrow, verse 10, produces repentance. Leading to salvation. Not to be regretted. In the King James, it's not to be repented of. We're not to regret that which we have done. If we have truly repented from it, we're set free from it. And it's a godly sorrow that brings us to repentance, and having repented, there should be never any sense in our hearts, oh, I wish I hadn't repented. That's What Paul is saying here that godly sorrow brings us to that place of repentance that doesn't need to be regretted, shouldn't be regretted. For observe, he says, this very thing in verse 11, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. And then he goes on to say the commendation that he gives him, this Corinthian church, because of their willingness to turn and correct that which was wrong in the church. They had received the letter. Titus gave him good news, and he's joyful about that. And he's saying, I'm so glad that you did so. You've demonstrated full repentance. And in having done that, he's telling them, you have expressed the wonderful move of the Holy Spirit in your lives. And he goes on to say in verse 11, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation What fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication in all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. That's complete. That is a done deal. As far as Paul was concerned, every wrong that they had done, everything that he addressed, now that it has been dealt with, it's in the past, we're starting over, clean slate, this is good news Paul had received from Titus, indeed. He goes on to say in verse 12, Therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, nor for the sake of who, him who suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. In some translations, the wording is a little bit different and I'd like to read the New American Standard because it's kind of the opposite. Paul is saying in this translation that I've got that he is thankful that his care for them in the sight of God appeared to them. In the New American Standard it says your what's the word? Earnestness. There. I'm trying to read my writing here. Your earnestness uh, on our behalf, in the sight of God, was good. So, either one, it's right, because it's a two-way relationship. It never should work from only one direction. And so whatever translation you've got, if perhaps we combine the two, we get a fuller depth of meaning in what Paul is conveying to the Corinthian church. We all must deal with our relationships in this way that he has prescribed here for the Corinthian church. And what a blessing it is for all of us when it is done properly and when it is done thoroughly and honestly and completely. That's the beauty of what Paul has been saying here in this, this passage that we've been reading. And now he continues in verse 13, Therefore. Another therefore, verse 12 started with a therefore, he says again, therefore we have been comforted in your comfort. And we rejoiced exceedingly more for the joy of Titus because his spirit had been refreshed by you all. So Paul is thankful that they treated Titus so wonderfully well and accepted everything that Titus said and did while he was there in Corinth on behalf of Paul the Apostle and representing Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. The church was doing very well, as far as Paul was concerned. Still needed to have some things dealt with. There were still individuals who had to be corrected. But as far as Paul was concerned, those things that he had addressed in the first letter, including the fact that a man had been sleeping with his father's wife, which appears to be the reference that he's made here in verse 13. That is good. Or rather, verse 12. That is a good thing. It's been dealt with. Restore that one. He's back in the family. He's back following Christ. He's repented of his sin. And he offended somebody and the offended one has also been taken into consideration by the process of reconciliation. What a beautiful example of faithfulness to all. He says in verse 14, For if anything I have boasted in him about you, I am not ashamed. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, even so our boasting to Titus was found true. And his affection, or affections, plural, are greater for you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how with fear and trembling you received him. Therefore, a third time he says the word, therefore, I rejoice that I have confidence in you in everything. If you are able to get these things accomplished, then I know you're going to make it to the end. I have confidence in you, my brothers and sisters, because of the things that you have demonstrated in the past, that you are on track to make it to the end. Don't give up. Don't stop doing well. Don't stop keeping your hands to the plow. Keep your minds on the things above and not on things below. Keep your eyes on the Lord. Keep looking up. Your redemption draws near. Continue to be faithful in all things, serving Him and resisting the devil and fleeing youthful lusts. Deal with issues that need to be dealt with as a body. Come together and be united, reconciled with one another and with Christ, our Lord, and make it All the way to the finish line. Fight the good fight. Run the race so as to win. That's the encouragement that we have from Paul in this letter. And I extend that same encouragement to you and us, all of us, here tonight. I pray that you have been blessed by the study of God's Word. Faith is wonderful. To be a part of a church that expresses that faith is a great joy for me. I hope it is for you. God bless.